Hi everybody. I hope you're having a great day. Welcome back to the Fragrance of Christ podcast. Today we're going to take a little sidetrack and start a new series about the Apostle Paul's voyage to Rome. And today's episode is called Voyage to Rome, A Late Start. If you feel blessed by the Fragrance of Christ podcast, please add me to your playlist on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcast, Breaker, or Stitcher. And don't forget to share me on social media. Remember what Christ said, Love one another just as I have loved you, John 13, 34. Before we jump right into our first segment, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings to us this week. May your spirit have charge of this podcast and your truth be shared on each episode. We pray that our lives will have victory in Jesus and by his name. Amen. Okay, if you're ready, I'm ready. Snack up, get comfy, and let's find out about Paul's voyage to Rome. So, as I said, this episode will be the first in a series about the Apostle Paul's voyage to Rome in the years 60 to 61 AD. The Jewish leadership of Jerusalem has accused Paul of sedition, according to their law. We can find that in Acts 24, verses 1 through 9. After possibly being held for ransom in Caesarea for two years by then-Governor Felix, Paul's case is heard by the new governor, Portius Festus, and yet another politico named King Herod Agrippa II in Acts 26. Paul eloquently defends himself to these authorities and also gives a witness about Jesus to everyone there with no evidence of belief in the room. Paul would have been set free as no evidence of the charges against him were found, but Paul, being a free man and a Roman citizen, requested to be tried in Rome. You see, Jesus had appeared to Paul saying, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Acts 23, verse 11. Paul is granted his appeal to be tried by Caesar and handed over to a Roman centurion of the Augustan regiment named Julius. How many times have I thought I was headed in the right direction and then out of the blue, I'm derailed into some kind of weird time loop thing I can't seem to make any sense of that is hindering my progress. Not just me, but other people tell me they experience the same thing. Praise God, his timing is perfect. I tend to blunder along, and sometimes God sends me a big, whoa, slow down command. Anyway, back to our story of Paul, who appears to be two years late from the get-go on heading over to Rome. Time to shove off! Julius wastes no time in setting sail for Rome with Paul, Luke, a fellow named Aristarchus, and some other prisoners in tow. Within a day, they reach the port of Sidon, where Julius shows a bit of kindness towards Paul 
and allows him freedom to visit with friends before setting sail again. A bit of wind tosses the ship, so the captain steers along the leeward shoreline of Cyprus and hugs the southern coastline of today's Turkey. Before pulling into Myla, a city of Lysa, Julius quickly books passage on an Alexandrian ship heading to Italy, and as soon as his responsibilities are all done, probably kicks back for a game of dice with his officers, thinking that the voyage to Rome is going along better than he could have expected. Not so fast. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Acts 27, verses 7 through 8. Now, winter is pressing upon this little ship of fools. Oh, <clears throat> I mean souls. So much time has passed by now that even the fast is mentioned in verse 9, or Tisri, the Day of Atonement, indicating the date to be September 24th in that year. After much time spent debating whether to put up here for the winter or to press forward to Crete, Paul warns Julius against proceeding. Paul predicts loss of cargo, the ship, and even lives if the ship continues. Against Paul's warning, Julius accepts the captain's and ship owner's advice to continue onward to Crete. There is a better winter harbor at Phoenix on Crete, and perhaps Julius values the judgment of experienced sailors over a prisoner who may or may not want to delay legal proceedings in Rome. Regardless, the winds let down, majority rules, and off they sail, thinking they have favor with the sea gods. How often do I launch my boat against good advice, or even worse, against God's will? Ha! Huh, too many times for me to confess here. At least with the Holy Spirit's help, I chose the right harbor. Jesus is my rest. How about you, friend? Stay tuned to hear Luke's account of what happens next as the wind changes and calamity strikes. And onward to voyage to Rome, Euroclidon. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Acts 27, 13 through 15. Euroclidon is a violent nor'easter, a levanter, or Mediterranean typhoon. We're not talking a few whitecaps here. No, this is more like perfect storm weather. The captain sets course a lee of a small island named Claudia. They scramble to bring the skiff on board as it is swamping off the aft tow line. Counting the waves, the more experienced crew tag a good one 
coming alongside and heave the skiff onto the deck. Off they go, cabling up the ship, but soon realize the ship is about to run aground upon the looming sandbars of the Surtees. Hey, Captain. Once I was in the Bering Sea on a crabber and holding watch with the skipper. We were running northerly about ten knots heading to Unilocleet in a driving rainstorm, chatting about nothing much when I happened to notice what looked like waves breaking over a sandbar. I hollered and the skipper opened his side window to stick his head out for a better look. It was raining so hard the water was standing against the windows, blurring our vision. Nothing on the radar. I grabbed a chart and saw nothing noted, but in a shallow sea like the Bering, it's common for bars to materialize and then disappear year after year. They go uncharted, but vessels beware. Sure enough, we could hardly believe our eyes, but the boat was about to ground on a ghost bar. The skipper hit the jog lever hard port and reverse throttle jarring our vessel into a change of course while throwing all loose parts and purses down onto the floor from the braking action. The boat shuddered once, then veered to port, nearly grazing the bar. Likewise, Paul's captain orders to strike sail in defeat of Euroclodon and narrowly misses the Sartus. Off they go again, away from the Sardis sands and into the hungry jaws of the tempest. After jogging up and down the Adriatic all night, pitching and tossing to and fro, they last lash each other to the deck to avoid being washed overboard by walls of water. The next day, all unnecessary goods, cargo, and ballast are thrown into the angry sea. The ship is far off course now, and no effort to lighten the ship has eased their plight. On the third day, in a last bid for survival, Captain gives the order to throw all the ship's tackle overboard. Without gear to assist, the crew throws it over by hand and fear begins to gnaw at their shrunken bellies. Amazingly, for many days, not much changes. Imagine the darkness. The skies are totally black. No sun by day, nor moon or stars by night. The sea is a dark, clawing hole. No light anywhere, day after day. Wave after wave washes over the deck as the lurching ship threatens to roll over, but doesn't. Eurocladon reminds me of a bully grabbing someone and shaking them upside down until everything in their pockets dumps out onto the ground. If you have ever been on the sea in that grip of a serious storm, you know what I mean. The sheer power of a great typhoon like this little ship endured is terrifying and humbling. The keel visibly twists and groans while those on deck pray that it does not snap. I wonder what Julius, the soldiers, captain, shipowner, crew, and the other prisoners are thinking by the first week of this storm. The words hopeless, helpless, or defeated come to mind. They may be praying to their gods who they must believe are very angry. How about by day 10? After that, 
it would most likely be downright fear or terror. Only Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus would likely be praying and trusting in our Heavenly Father, Yahweh, for deliverance. Until next time, we must leave our beleaguered group in the deathly grip of Eurocladon, which is still raging with no end in sight. I told you so, but after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Acts 27, verses 21 through 25. Well, that's more like a message of the good, bad, and the ugly. No telling who on deck wants to throw Paul overboard for rubbing it in. But no one has any fight left. Seasickness, hunger, fear, and exhaustion rules. By the fourteenth night, they know that land is near. They don't recognize the shoreline, but no time is wasted as the skiff is lowered by the anchoring crew as an escape vessel, lest the ship break up on the rocky shore. But Paul warns that all must stay aboard and trust God, or they will not survive the rescue that God has planned for them. Obligingly, the Roman soldiers cut the ropes on the skiff and set it adrift. Finally, someone listens to Paul. Next morning, the rudder is loosed and the mainsail is hoisted. The captain hopes the wind will dump them aground on the sandy beach ahead. Suddenly, everything and everyone not tied down blows forward on every level as the ship strikes a reef instead, jamming the prow into the rocks with every smashing wave. The stern breaks apart, littering the reef with floating debris and planking. The soldiers set about to kill the prisoners to prevent escape. But Julius wishes to save Paul and gives the command, All who can swim are to jump ship and head for shore first. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Acts 27 verse 44 Hooray! Shipwrecked but saved. But where? Just as God promised, all 276 persons aboard the doomed ship are saved. The natives are friendly and help the soggy sailors build a fire on the beach as it is cold and rainy. They let Paul's party know that the island is called Malta. Luke records that the natives are unusually friendly. I wonder why. 
Perhaps some of the foodstuffs and boat gear has been washing up on the beach during Euroclodon, and they are in a happy mood. They may think their gods are favoring them with more surprises from the sea for their entertainment or exploitation. No sooner does Paul gather wood for the fire than he is bitten by a viper, which scares the locals. Paul just shakes the snake into the fire, and the Maltese immediately expect Paul to succumb to the venomous attack. They suspect the prisoner Paul of being a murderer or something. He must be deserving of such horrid judgment. But Paul is not harmed. So now he must be a god. This is so true of humans even today. Idol worship still makes no common sense. Anyway, the mayor of the area, a man named Plubius, courteously invites the shipwrecked crew into his home for three days. Plubius's father is sick with fear and dysentery, so Paul prays and lays hands on the man. The man is healed and the good news spreads across Malta. If there are any lingering suspicions of the foreigners in their midst, all doubt is now erased. Is this further proof that Paul is indeed a visiting god? Here come the islands sick and diseased. Their sicknesses are healed too. Of course, Paul does not allow the Maltese to worship him as a god. He ministers to the entire island about Jesus and many become believers. Why do I believe that there are many saved at Malta because of the witness of Paul? Because that is what apostles are instructed to do by the Master Jesus, Yeshua. And throughout the book of Acts, prayer for the sick and laying on of hands leads to healing, and that leads to belief in Jesus and salvation in Him. It's a heavenly formula. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Peter in Acts 5, 12-15. That's just an example of how the apostles were gifted with many signs and wonders, but they did not take credit for it. They gave God and Jesus all the glory. God even uses resurrection of the dead to reach people for salvation in Jesus. Take the instance of Jesus raising Lazarus or the apostle Peter at Joppa. Tabitha or Dorcas, who was a Christian disciple, took sick and died. Other disciples knew that Peter was staying at Lydda, which was not far from Joppa. Two men went to Peter and asked him to help. Then we find that Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping. 
showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. Acts nine thirty nine through 42 There are many other scriptural examples of what I think happened on Malta. Enjoy your Bible study and research. God makes sure that his gospel is going out to every people, nation, and tribe. Paul is an obedient servant of our Lord. He knows that his destiny is Rome and time is short. I want to talk about today. The gospel message is still going out and it is as strongly received by lost people as it was in the day of the apostles. People all over the world are still lost in sin. They still worship idols, are sick and tormented by devils. They still need hope and salvation. The same formula still works. Pray for the sick. Lay on hands. Let people experience the raw power of the Holy Spirit heal folks, cast out demons, or raise the dead. The darkness of Africa is being lifted in this same way, and belief in Christ is working over the whole continent. Hallelujah! Praise and thank you, Jesus, for lighting that fire in Africa and across the world. Amen, amen. In the meantime, Julius finds another Alexandrian ship that has wintered over on Malta, whose figurehead is the twins, Castor and Pollux. We find from Wikipedia that Castor and Pollux are twin half-brothers in Greek and Roman mythology, known together as the Dioscuri. Their mother was Leda, but they had different fathers. Now keep in mind, this is Greek and Roman mythology. It's not something that I believe in. But back in that day, Castor was believed to be the mortal son of Tyndareus, the king of Sparta, while Pollux was the divine son of Zeus, who seduced Leda in the guise of a swan. The pair are thus an example of heteropaternal superfecundation. What a mouthful. Though accounts of their birth are varied, they are sometimes said to have been born from an egg, along with their twin sisters, Helen of Troy and Clytemnestra. You can't make this up, folks. But you can check it out at Wikipedia. In Latin, the twins are also known as the Gemini, literally twins, or Castores, as well as the Ten... Tinderidae or Tinderids. Pollux asked Zeus to let him share his own immortality with his twin to keep them together, and they were transformed into the constellation Gemini. Woo! The pair were regarded as the patrons of sailors. Oh, finally, we get down to why they're 
figureheads on the ship, to whom they appeared as St. Elmo's fire. They were also associated with horsemanship in keeping with their origin as the Indo-European horse twins. Okay, so back to Julius, who finds another Alexandrian ship that has been wintering over on Malta that has the figurehead of the twins, Castor and Pollux. In three months, it will bear them to Rome. Aha, until then, they must suffer the honor and island entertainment of Malta. What a nice break after all they had just survived. Stay tuned if you're feeling the spark of the Holy Spirit and where it is taking us on this voyage to Rome. There are plenty of twists and turns to this story left to be told. God bless and check out the next episode titled Voyage to Rome Resumes. That's it for tonight, folks, and I hope you have been blessed, and thank you for listening to the Fragrance of Christ podcast. Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Until the next time.